Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 34. And this week we'll be working our way through Jeremiah chapters 26 through chapter 49. Now, throughout chapters 1 through 25, Jeremiah recorded opposition to his message. But in this section of chapters 26 through 29, he specifically focuses on the people's response to his message and how his message was rejected by people both in Judah and by those already in captivity in Babylon. So now chapter 26 takes us back to chapter 7 and the temple address. In that chapter, in chapter 7, Jeremiah focuses on the content of the message. But here in chapter 26, we find the response of the people. If the people refused to obey the law or to respond to God's prophets, God would make the temple as desolate as the tabernacle at Shiloh. And after the priests, prophets, and all the people heard Jeremiah's words, they immediately did what? They immediately did not follow his words. They called for his death. Jeremiah is put on trial. However, after hearing the case, the officials, along with the elders, sided with Jerusalem against the priests and the false prophets. Some of the elders supported their contentions by quoting from Micah chapter 3, verse 12. So Jeremiah was actually spared because of the scriptures. Funny how that worked out for him. However, others were not so fortunate. Chapters 27 and 28 details Jeremiah's conflict with the false prophets in Jerusalem. King Zedekiah had a secret meeting with some of the delegates to discuss a way to rebel against Babylon. But then God tells Jeremiah to make a yoke like those used to hitch oxen together and wear it around his neck. This was an object lesson, a visual demonstration to the king, the priests, and the people that they needed to submit to the yoke of bondage of Babylon. God said it was going to happen and there was nothing they could do to change it. But in chapter 28, a false prophet named Hananiah challenged Jeremiah's message with a contradictory one. Hananiah urges rebellion against Babylon, and he says that within two years, God would bring back to Judah all the articles of the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had taken on his first wave of attack, along with King Jehoiachin and all the exiles that had been carried off. And to make this message visually appealing, he takes off the yoke, Takes, takes the yoke off the neck of Jeremiah and breaks it, visually telling the people that God would break the yoke of Babylon. Well, the story concludes with Jeremiah attacking the credentials of Hananiah and exposing him, him as a false prophet. And less than two months later, Hananiah dies. You better be careful about going after the true man of God. In chapter 29, Jeremiah drafts a letter to the people in exile in Babylon, essentially telling them, to get comfortable. The Lord would restore them after the 70 years of exile had run its course. However, the exiles did not believe Jeremiah because his message was contradictory to what the false prophets in Babylon were saying. So we've got false prophets in Judah and in Babylon. Jeremiah singled out the ringleaders of the false prophets and tells them that God said that they would be burned alive for their sins. After his first letter to the exiles, Jeremiah learns of another letter written from Shemaiah, one of the exiles in Babylon, to the leaders in Jerusalem calling for them to do something about this prophet Jeremiah. And so because of what Shemaiah does, God would punish both him and his descendants for preaching rebellion against the Lord. And so you can see how God is constantly protecting his message through his true prophet Jeremiah. Even though there are false prophets that are saying other things, God is still wants to protect his message, his true message through his prophet Jeremiah. Now, chapters 30 through 33 start a new section, and they offer us hope. Because while the people are already in the process of exile, these chapters look beyond uh, the time of exile to a time when Israel would be restored back to her land. 
Now, these chapters are not just speaking of the restoration after the 70 years of exile. The language in these chapters points to a future time during the millennial kingdom when Israel will be fully and completely restored to the place that she was destined for. However, according to chapter 30, before a future restoration takes place, a time of trouble will come upon, will come upon Israel like none other. And instead of serving foreign powers, the yoke around her neck will be broken and she'll be freed to serve the Lord. Now, it's likely that this time of trouble um, is a phrase that's used to depict the still future tribulation period, when the remnants of Israel and Judah will experience a time of unparalleled persecution. That time of trouble will end with the return of Christ, the Davidic king, to set up the kingdom on earth for that millennial reign of a thousand years. Then, in chapter 31, Israel and Judah will have a new relationship with the Lord. God will provide a new beginning for his people. He had judged her for her sins, but now that judgment will be reversed, and God will make a new covenant with his people. This new covenant is for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. God will also establish a new city for his people. Jerusalem will be destroyed by Babylon, but the city will be rebuilt and will be holy again to the Lord, never to be destroyed again. Now, these promises await their fulfillment in the millennial kingdom. In God's new covenant, he will put his new law in their minds and on their hearts, not just on tablets of stone like he did on the Ten Commandments. This will give Israel the inner ability to obey his righteous standards. Now, while the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant awaits the millennial reign of Christ, the church today in some ways participates in some of the benefits of this covenant. And that participation is all made possible by our union with Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 is probably the best verse that makes a connection for all these details. It says this, and I'm reading from, uh, from NLT. It says, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance that God has promised for them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of sins that they had committed under that first covenant. Now, there are many more good verses in Hebrews about Christ as the mediator of a, of a better covenant. So while we, the church today, are able to participate in the blessings of salvation by means of the death of Jesus, this new covenant will find its ultimate fulfillment in the millennial kingdom as it relates to the final restoration of Israel. Now, in chapter 32, we find Jeremiah's emotions here. Jeremiah is perplexed because in light of all that Israel has done and will continue to do against the laws of the Lord, how could the Lord possibly bring about a restoration? How is this new covenant even going to be possible? He's perplexed, and rightly so, because all of Israel's history shows that he should be perplexed. But Jeremiah could depend on God's word, even though he didn't understand how it would be fulfilled. And we can do that very same thing today. We might not have all the answers, I sure don't, as to how future times and events will roll out. But I can depend on the trueness, we might say, I guess, of God's word. However, because Jeremiah's desire to know how Israel's restoration was going to happen, the Lord gave him access to some of those ways. And you read those in chapter 33. In answer to Jeremiah's prayer in Jeremiah 33.3, God would unlock some of those secrets and share them with Jeremiah in answer to his prayer. The main point here for us is that God wants us to come to him for understanding and insight. All true wisdom and knowledge begins and ends with him. 
Now, look at the last verse of chapter 33. If Israel ever needs confirmation that the Lord is always with her and has a plan for her in the future, they need to read verses 25 and 26 of chapter 33. Mark them down in your Bible, highlight them, uh, underline them in red. Listen to what it says. I'm reading from NLT. But this is what the Lord says. I would no more reject my people than I would change my laws that govern the night and day, earth and sky. I will never abandon the descendants of Jacob or David, my servant, or change the plan that David's descendants will rule the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Instead, I will restore them to their land and have mercy on them. Wow, those are some powerful verses. The Lord's promise to restore Israel is as fixed as the laws of his creation. That's a very, very powerful promise. Now, while chapters 30 through 33 contain messages of hope for Israel's future restoration, chapters 34 to 45 shift back to the present theme of judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. All the events and messages contained in this larger section of chapters, which is chapters 34 to 45, are dated near the fall of Jerusalem, which happened in 586 B.C. Now let's look at chapters 34 through 36, and these are incidents that take place right before Jerusalem falls. Now the siege of Jerusalem lasted for a few years before the city finally falls. Oftentimes armies would encamp around a city and kind of wait it out until all the food supply, all the water supply was gone, the people could no longer survive, and they would give up. So sometimes a siege would last for a long time. And during that time, there was a break in the siege of Jerusalem because word of an Egyptian force entering Palestine became more of a threat to the Babylonians. And so they paused their siege efforts on Jerusalem to go south and face off with the Egyptians who had come up to help Israel. But the Egyptians returned home without joining the battle. So as you look at chapter 4, it gives us insight into the people's wavering nature, their inconsistent living. Because as Jeremiah is exposing many of the social evils of the day, he singles out the enslavement of the Israelites by their own people. This clearly violated the law. And so in a desperate attempt to win God's favor, the king ordered everyone to free their slaves. But their obedience to God did not last because after the people freed their slaves, Babylon stopped their siege and directed their efforts towards confronting Egypt. The people were excited that Egypt came to their aid, and so they were, so they reneged on their promise to God to free their slaves as they thought life was going to return back to normal so we can forsake the oaths that we made. Well, you can't hide your actions from God. God orders the Babylonians to return their siege of the city. Israel was only obedient when it was beneficial for themselves. And that is true for even for us today. Sometimes we're only obedient when it's beneficial for us. Now, chapter 35 provides another object lesson for the people of Judah, the Rechabites. The Rechabites have connections to Rechab, or Rechab who assisted Jehu in exterminating Baal worship from Israel. They're also connected to the Kenites who descended from Moses, uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. And evidently, Jonadab, who was one of these leaders of the Rechabites, rejected a settled way of life. He chose the life of a nomad. But they were forced to move towards Jerusalem when Babylon threatened the area of Judah. And so Jeremiah, what he does, he brings his family into the temple and offers them wine. Well, what's the point here? Why, why would he offer them wine? This was to teach Judah a lesson. 
Jeremiah knew that this family would reject the offer of wine because of their forefather's command not to drink wine. And in obeying their forefather's command, they stood in stark contrast to the people of Judah who had consistently disobeyed their forefather, who had disobeyed the Lord. Judah deserved to be punished because she did not heed the words of the Lord. Because the Rechabites were faithful to the command of their forefather, the Lord assured them that they would always have descendants who would worship the Lord. This promise points to a continuing line of descendants. God is always looking for individuals whose lives are characterized by faithfulness. They will experience God's blessings even in the midst of life's trials. Now, moving into chapter 39, God tells Jeremiah to get out some pen and paper and to write down all the prophecies that he will give him on a scroll. And this would enable him to read them aloud to all the people and show them that they needed to repent. However, since Jeremiah was barred from access to the temple, he gives the scroll to Baruch and instructs him to read it to the people. Baruch was his assistant. And as Baruch reads the scrolls, some of the officials find out about it and report the matter to the king. The scroll was brought in and it was read to King Jehoiakim. And what happens? He eventually burns the entire scroll. Can you believe that? And he orders the capture of Jeremiah and Baruch, but the Lord had hid them. The Lord had protected them. Now, Jeremiah writes another scroll with all the words of the first one, plus some additional words just for King Jehoiakim. And because the king had refused to believe God's warning about Babylon, the Lord told him that no descendant of his would permanently sit on the throne of David and that Jehoiakim would not receive a proper burial. Now, we mentioned that earlier. We mentioned that note earlier in Jeremiah 22. He would receive the burial of a donkey, is what it says. Men today perhaps do not burn the Bible, but men destroy the Word of God in the form of exegesis. They destroy it by not reading it as it's written in its normal literary form, by ignoring its historical and grammatical exegesis, by changing the Bible's context itself, by making up their own rules of interpretation, by making it to say whatever they want it to say. This is how the present culture burns the Word of God, just like Israel's king did. It's not a physical burning like Israel's king did. It's a different kind of burning. It's a much more dangerous kind of burning. Now, chapters 37 through 39 are incidents that take place during the fall of Jerusalem. Jeremiah is likely to be in his mid-50s when this tragic event of the fall of Jerusalem occurs. And as we mentioned earlier, the withdrawal of Babylon to deal with Egypt uh, brought a period of relative calm, we might say. Jeremiah had planned to take care of some personal business, but in his attempt to leave the city, they charged him with desertion. He was beaten and put uh, in prison in a dungeon. And when Babylon returns to Jerusalem to renew the siege, King Zedekiah secretly calls for Jer Jeremiah in prison and asked him if he had a message from the Lord. Jeremiah goes before the king and said that Jerusalem would fall and the king would be handed over to the Babylonians. Jeremiah did not want to return to the imprisonment in the dungeon, so he asked the king if he might be placed elsewhere. And so Zedekiah agrees, and uh, Jeremiah was transferred to the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace. The king also arranged for Jeremiah to have bread each day so that he would not starve. You know, one author makes a good comment here. By being imprisoned in the royal palace, Jeremiah was assured a steady supply of food, while many others in Jerusalem died of starvation during the siege. This is an example of how, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Romans 8.28 now, in chapter 38, we find out that even though the king put Jeremiah in the royal courtyard, some of the powerful officials did not like his placement there because of his discouraging messages that he was speaking to the soldiers and to the people. These officials, being more powerful than the king, had Jeremiah thrown into a cistern where he sank down in the mud at the bottom of the pit. 
And many of the people wanted Jeremiah dead, but the only one who sought to help him was a fellow by the name of Ebed-Melech, who arranged with the king for Jeremiah to be released back into the courtyard once again. Well, we find out that Zedekiah sends for Jeremiah again, asking him if he had any other messages from the Lord. This time, Jeremiah was to be was instructed to hold nothing back. Jeremiah said that if Zedekiah would surrender, his life would be spared, the city would not be burned. But Zedekiah didn't listen to Jeremiah's words. Jeremiah remained in the courtyard until the Babylonians finally captured the city. And chapter 39 shows us that what Jeremiah had predicted for so long finally became a reality. And there are three other chapters in the Bible that record the fall of Jerusalem as well. Jeremiah chapter 52 2 Kings 25 and 2 Chronicles 36. However, even though Babylon captures the city, Jeremiah was treated well by Nebuchadnezzar. And the king even ordered his men to protect him and do whatever he says. Ironic, isn't it? The king of Judah doesn't listen to Jeremiah, nor does he protect him. But the king of the most powerful nation on the earth, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, protects Jeremiah and he listens to Jeremiah as well. Now we shift to chapters 40 through 45, and these are incidents that take place after the fall of Jerusalem. You would think that the fall of Jerusalem, the fall of the city, would teach Judah an unforgettable lesson, but no. The people still refuse to trust in God or to submit to Babylon as Jeremiah had instructed them to do. In chapter 40, Jeremiah decided to stay in Jerusalem and minister to all those who are there. Nebuchadnezzar had appointed Gedaliah as leader over the region. But even as peace and stability were returning to the land, forces of intrigue and rebellion were churning. This time it's the Ammonites. And eventually Gedaliah is assassinated along with several of his men by Ishmael who was acting on instructions by the king of Ammon. And this group, led by Ishmael himself, left the city, taking captives with them, including Jeremiah. However, an Israelite dispatchment heard of what was happening, and the leader of their group, Johanan, caught up to the Ammonites and took back the captives. But instead of returning back to Jerusalem and fearing that Babylon would retaliate because Gedaliah, their appointed governor, was killed, this group decided to flee towards Egypt. But before they made their final decisions to go towards Egypt, they asked Jeremiah to ask for the Lord's guidance. And this happens in chapter 42. And the Lord answers Jeremiah 10 days later and told the group to stay in the land and not to be afraid of the Babylonians. If they were to go to Egypt, they would die by the sword, by famine and plague. You would think that this remnant would listen to Jeremiah after all that had happened. But they refused to listen yet again, showing their true character. And in fact, in chapter 43, they accused Jeremiah of lying to them. They also forced both Jeremiah and Baruch to go with them to Egypt forcibly. In spite of all that God had done to vindicate Jeremiah, the people still refused to believe him. The issue was not one of divine miracles or signs or messages, but a question of faith. And so in chapter 44, Jeremiah begins his ministry to those Jews in Egypt. He finds out that the Jews are burning incense to the Egyptian gods, and he tells them that God will punish them for this sin just like he did to the nation of Judah. However, like the character of the Israelite people, these Jews in Egypt refuse to listen. Now, chapter 44 is unique. Chronologically in the story, it should be placed after chapter 36, but it serves as an appendix to the incidents listed in that chapter. But it's placed here in Jeremiah's book, and for good reasons, I believe. Probably Jeremiah placed this chapter last in the prophecies to Judah to emphasize the response that God desired from the godly Jews during the exile. This is what he really wanted them to respond. This short chapter provides insight into Baruch's life. 
He thought that being an assistant to Jeremiah was going to be a life of comfort and ease, even popularity. His grandfather had been governor of Jerusalem during the reign of Josiah. Perhaps he aspired to the same place of greatness, and thus he was discouraged with what God was doing. He was discouraged with how God's plans were being carried out. But rather than being discouraged, he should have been thankful. One author says it best this way, Ironically, the very suffering through which Baruch passed because of his loyalty to Jeremiah gained him honor beyond anything he could have anticipated. Seeking to serve the Lord in a significant position of ministry is not wrong in itself, provided one's motive is to glorify God. It's seeking position for one's own glory that is wrong, whether it's in ministry or elsewhere. God wanted the people of Israel just to be thankful that God was protecting them, but they didn't even want to be thankful. Now, chapters 46 through 51 move us to a new section, and I know our time is leaving us. This is the longest book in the Bible, Jeremiah, so maybe you'll give me a few more minutes to finish out this section. These are prophecies about the nations in chapters 46 through 51. And these prophecies against four nations occur in every prophetical book except for Hosea. And the fact that prophets gave prophecies of judgment about other nations reflects God's sovereignty over the whole world, over all the nations of the world. So in chapter 46, we find judgment against Egypt. God's judgment will come against Pharaoh, all of Egypt's gods, and all the people who relied on Pharaoh. However, God graciously promised that Egypt's destruction would not be permanent. And in contrast with Egypt, who would be taken into exile, Israel was not to fear or be dismayed. Israel could look forward to a time when she would enjoy peace and security. A remnant would survive to receive again God's blessings. Now, chapter 47 is about Philistia, who had been a thorn in the Israel's side throughout much of her history, the Philistines. Israel's nemesis. God predicted that the Philistines would be caught in the middle of the struggle between Babylon and Egypt and would be destroyed. Chapter 48 is about Moab, and Moab's history was one of relative peace, but time of exile was on the horizon for the Moabites. Moab was known for its vineyards, and so God would send soldiers to pour out her wine that was no longer fit to drink. Because Moab trusted in her prosperity, she would be judged and taken captive. Chapter 49 is judgment rendered against the nations of Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Kedar, Hazor, and Elam. However, chapters 50 through 51, it's judgment directed against Babylon. Jeremiah's longest message against the nations focused on Babylon. And even though God used Babylon to bring judgment on other nations, he would also judge this nation, putting their gods to shame by demonstrating who is the one and true God. However, we've got ahead of ourselves because chapters 50 and 51 are part of next week's, next week's reading. So we will deal with them next week. So that's all I have for you this week. If you have any questions, email them to BibleReading at lmbc.org, and I will talk with you all next week.